um, which comes from 2 Kings uh, 23, uh, 1 through 20. Just a quick note, we've been in uh, 2 Chronicles the past few weeks, but we're going to jump to this passage from 2 Kings today, which includes a lot of details that uh, we don't see in the Chronicles, uh, but we'll hear about in today's sermon. So, um, yeah, a little bit of overlap, so just to give you all a heads up about that. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun and the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to, to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, 
the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is a tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Good morning. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today where we are studying the life of King Josiah and we're learning from him what it means to have a heart for God. Today's a little bit different as Pastor Dan said. We've been working our way through his life in the book of Chronicles. We're going to take a, a break just today and be in Kings. And the reason here, we talked about this a couple weeks back, the reason is that these two books unpack the history of God's, of Israel's kings, but they do so with different emphases. Still the same history, but it's just like when you're telling somebody about your day, you can't say everything about it. And so you always choose some things to say and then some things not to say based on what you're trying to communicate. That's the difference between the book of Kings and Chronicles. They're trying to help you learn different things about how this life of faith actually works. So the book of Kings, just as a brief review, it's written to God's people who have been exiled out of Israel. They're now living in Babylon. And it's trying to answer the question, how did we get here? If we are God's people and he's made so many great promises to us, how did we get beaten up by a godless nation? How did we get kicked out of our land? And the answer throughout the book of Kings is, our kings led us astray. They led us to trust in other things other than the God who loves us, and we followed them. We turned away from God, and we worshipped idols. And so to help you understand how this happened, what this looks like, this author gives you just layers of detail on idolatry, the nature of idolatry, its prevalence. He points out all the things that made it so powerful that it was actually able to push God out of the hearts of his people, which is necessary then for you and me to realize because as we've talked about, you remember how the Old Testament works. It gives you this very visible physical picture of what faith looks like, very visible physical picture of what faithlessness looks like. In other words, it shows you things that you can see, 
to help you understand the spiritual world that you can't see. And so you can't let yourself think today, well, you know, this is an interesting case study, but it's from an earlier, less civilized, developed society, one that worshipped idols. We don't worship idols, however, so it really doesn't have a whole lot to say to us. You can't think like that. You have to think instead that, yes, their idolatrous worship was more visible than ours is. But the underlying motivation is the same. We have the same underlying roots when we're faithless to God that they did. And so we need to guard ourselves against the same temptations that they had. Let me see if I give you an illustration that comes out of our passage. If you look at verse 15, you hear about the altar at Bethel. This is the high place that was erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. You think, who's, who's Jeroboam? He's the first king of what would become the northern kingdom of Israel. So you go back to Solomon, and Solomon ruled over all 12 tribes of Israel, just like his father David did. But God took away the northern tribes from Solomon because Solomon turned away from the Lord in his later years. He had not been fully faithful to God. And so God took those northern tribes and gave them to a man named Jeroboam. He took and gave the southern ones to Solomon's son. And one of the very first things that Jeroboam did was lead those northern tribes to rebel against God, and he did it with this altar that's in our passage. Now, if you go back into 1 Kings chapter 12, it tells you why he did that. Apparently, Jeroboam was concerned. He was concerned that he might lose his new kingdom. And he thought to himself, if people from my kingdom go down to Jerusalem in order to worship, that's where God has told us to sacrifice in his temple, if they go down to Jerusalem, to where Solomon's son is king, it's really likely that they will transfer their allegiance back to Solomon's son, and they'll kill me. And so Jeroboam comes up with this plan to keep the people from going down to Jerusalem. He makes two golden calves, and he sets up an altar in the northern territories, and he holds a religious festival there. He holds it at the same time that a festival is held down in Jerusalem. And he comes out to all of the people and he says, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now think about what's being worshipped here, because it's not first and foremost little golden statues. But you worship the statues, you reject God, because doing that gets you something that you want. So what is it that Jeroboam wants? He wants to keep his kingdom, and he wants to keep his head. And he believes that if he sets up these little statues and worships them, then he'll get what he wants, that they are a means to an end for him. What do the people want? They want comfort and convenience. They want a religion that doesn't cost them too much. They don't want to take the time and trouble to go down to Jerusalem. And so the statues are a means to an end for them just as much as they are for Jeroboam. They can put their time in quickly and get back on with life. And so God is telling you with this story that even in the Old Testament, idolatry never started on the outside. It never started with what you did. But it always started on the inside. It started with what you wanted. Jeroboam sets up this physical altar because of what he hungers for on the inside. And the people actually go there 
because it gives them what they want as well. That's why we keep saying here at Renewal that idolatry is not a primitive, outdated concept, but that idolatry is just as much a present danger for us as it's ever been for any of God's people. That's why we're taking this little break today in Kings, even though we've seen some of these things already in our study of Chronicles. It's worth our time to look at them from the perspective that the author of Kings has as he walks us through Josiah's life. Now let me give just one more comment before we dive in here. How do we work through this passage? It is just dense with detail. And one of the ways that we could do that would be to unpack all of the different idols, the gods, goddesses, and the meanings behind them. And so we could talk about how Asherah was a Canaanite fertility goddess. She was regularly seen as the partner of other gods. And we could do that with each of the idols named here, which would be, I think it'd be kind of interesting, but it's not the point of the passage. God did not put this passage in Scripture and then preserve it for thousands of years so that you and I would become experts or at least be able to talk about ancient Near Eastern idolatry. It's not the point. The point is to show you and me what is true of our world and to tell us how we need to respond to it. The point is to help you realize that if idolatry was that easy and it was that appealing for God's people back then, then it's that easy and that appealing for you and me now. And so we're going to look at this passage under two main headings. We're going to think first about what is it that makes idolatry so easy to slide into? And then second, what gives us hope in the face of it? What hope do we have that we'll be able to be faithful rather than faithless? So two main points today, a lot of different sub-points. I've tried to put them in your bulletin just to help you sort of walk through it a little bit. Uh, but two main points, what makes idolatry easy to slide into, what gives us hope in the face of it. The author overwhelms you from verses 4 through 14. You have name after name after name after name of alternative deities. You have several different kinds of worship practices. You have literally tons and tons of infrastructure. You have utensils, you have images, you have altars, you have buildings. All the stuff that enabled people to worship these other gods. You work your way through that, and I think you're supposed to feel a little overwhelmed, left a little reeling, because you start to realize there are so many alternatives to worshiping God. You start realizing the truth of Romans 1, that if you will not worship the one true God, you will worship something else. And as you step away from this passage, you're left with this very visual picture that there are just an awful lot of options out there to choose from, apart from God, and that those options are really hard to resist. Now, why? What makes it so easy to slide into worshiping something other than God? Number of general principles here. Let's just look at four really quickly. First general principle. These options are highly visible. You see them everywhere you look. Verse 8, Josiah broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. So what is the very first thing that you notice as you come and enter the city? You notice this high place. You notice this altar. It's not God's altar. His is in the temple. 
This is a different God. Very first thing that you see as you enter into this city. That visibility just increases as you start walking down the streets of this city. An earlier king, King Ahaz, set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem, according to 2 Chronicles 28. Altars were probably reestablished by Josiah's grandfather when he became king. You see these altars everywhere you go. Or verse 12, you see the altars on the rooftop of one of the most prominent buildings of the city, the upper chamber that King Ahaz had made. It was a royal building. You could see it, very visible. What does all of that say to you? It tells you that what people worship is highly visible in every society because every society makes it visible. Spend just a little bit of time in any culture. You learn very quickly that every society promotes certain values, certain goals, things that you can rely on other than God. And you learn that the society does not hide those values and goals. It makes sure that they are clearly known to everyone in the society. Very first general principle here, that sliding into trusting something other than God is easy because each society has ways of making those alternatives easily seen. Second general principle, you learn that idolatry tends to get brought into the faith. It doesn't stay out there in the larger society. But because it's accepted as a part of the general society, you often find it getting mixed into our expressions of faith as well. So verse 6, there's an Asherah in the house of God. Verse 7, there are houses of male cult prostitutes that would be part of a fertility cult who were in the house of the Lord. Along with a place in the house of the Lord where women wove hangings for the Asherah, in verse 11, there were horses dedicated to the sun, the sun god, that were right at the entrance to the house of the Lord. You just think about what's going on here from the history of God's people. God, God brought his people out of Egypt and he said to them, you are my people who I love. I've given myself to you completely, and so first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, no other rivals to me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image and bow down or worship them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What's God saying there? He's saying, I want you. <laughs> I gave you all of me. And I want all of you. And the people hear that, and they're like, yeah, that's great. And we need more than you can offer. So it's not like we're getting rid of you, God. It's still going to come up to your house. We're just adding these other things in, the same things that the people around us trust in. Adding those things in so that we can rely on those things with you, relying on you. The combination is just going to be better for us than you alone. Second general principle you have to watch out for, that the high visibility of other things that you can rely on in your society doesn't stay there. But it tends to get brought into the faith and mixed in with the faith. It, may, it becomes a regular part of how you experience the faith, which then makes it really easy for you to adopt those things and go along with them. Third general principle, and we'd be really foolish to ignore how important this is. Idolatry is promoted aggressively in a society. 
it comes with a certain amount of, let me say it this way, coercive power, power to enforce, power to persuade. It comes from those who worship something other than God, and in this context, it comes backed by the state. Verse 5, the kings of Judah, that's the kings of the southern kingdom, had ordained their own priests. Verse 11, the kings of Judah had also dedicated horses to the sun. Verse 12, they made altars on the roof of the upper chamber. They used their position to both establish and to extend idolatry in their world. And it's a long history to this. It goes all the way back, verse 13, to King Solomon before the country split into two. Back before then, Solomon had promoted false worship. He built high places, established worship, worship sites for a variety of gods from the surrounding nations. And what was taking place in Judah was also taking place in Israel, the northern kingdom. Verse 15, we already saw that Jeroboam initiated this kind of false worship, urged his people to abandon God. In verse 19, you're told that the kings of Israel, that's the kings of the northern kingdom, just continued to create shrines and high places that led the people away from loving the Lord, their God. What do we learn from that? There are people in every society who will take the lead in actively promoting reliance on something other than God. Now, sometimes those are individuals. They're powerful people, vocal people. They're well-placed people who will influence you. Sometimes that influence is not necessarily individual, but it comes from the established structures of your society, the power centers of your world, your government, your employer, places where you do business, the places where you go shopping, smaller clubs and organizations. People and organizations who will boldly tell you what they believe, who will urge you, at times pressure you to agree with them, and who will give you strong incentives to do so, trying to get you on board with what everyone else is worshiping too. What you're seeing here is that idolatry, false gods are never merely passive. They are not simply a take-it-or-leave-it option in a world that turns its back on God. Instead, they are actively promoted by the powers and institutions of your society until fourth general principle, they become institutionalized. Now, I want you to imagine with me, if you can, what this world was like for Josiah. You remember that he was an eight-year-old boy when he first became king. What was this like as an eight-year-old boy, born into a world filled with idolatry, idolatry everywhere you looked, one that had lost the word of God, did not have God's voice in the back of their heads? What's that mean for this young man? From day one, this is the world that he's indoctrinated into. It's the only world that he's ever known. And it was the world that he was taught to expect. So imagine him, little man, holding his mother's hand, walking around, or maybe holding an advisor's. Imagine they've gone outside Jerusalem, they're coming back into Jerusalem, and they're walking past what? The altar at the gates. Maybe that older person makes an offering. Maybe he's invited to make an offering. Maybe he asks, why are we doing this? 
Because that's what we do, Josiah. That's what helps keeps the city safe and prosperous. Oh, okay. Then he walks into the city, sees all of the street corners. He doesn't see them like you and I would see them. Doesn't see the altars as something unusual, something that would be worth studying, that would be standing out. He just sees that as normal. He would see that like you and I see a stop sign at each corner. Nothing out of the ordinary. It's just part of the way the world is. Or maybe the person says, okay, let's go to the temple now, Josiah. Go ahead, honey. Pet the horses on the way in. Wave to the temple prostitutes. Say hi. Can you imagine what that would be like growing up in that world? You wouldn't see sharp distinctions between true and false worship. You'd see all of this as one big coherent whole. It was a world that you would learn to navigate, that you would be educated to navigate. It was a world that you understood just like every other little boy and girl who grew up in it, going all the way back to Solomon who started the mess to begin with some 300 years earlier. What would that be like to live in a country that for three centuries has been syncretizing? Yes, there were some good kings. They led reform movements, but for 300 years, the country has been bringing these, these rivals in, rivals to God. Do you think you would even notice? Probably not, right? It would just feel normal to you because it was all you ever knew. That's what makes idolatry so easy to slide into because it doesn't come with a warning label. It just looks like normal life. It looks like the only life you've ever known. It's so normal, you can't even imagine a different one. Which makes you realize that you don't have to imagine what that would have been like for Josiah because you've also grown up in a world filled with things that you could trust on to give you trust in to give you a good life other than relying on God. A world that is filled with modern idols that don't have warning labels. The only difference between you and me and Josiah is that our idols are not nearly as easy to see as his were. And that's what makes this stuff so hard to talk about. Hard enough in the abstract, but really hard when you want to talk concretely. It's much harder when you try to see it where it's actually true of you and me in our society. Because if someone points out an idol, something that you and I might trust in as much as we trust in the Lord, our first response tends to be, what are you talking about? That's not an idol. That's, that's just the way things are. And then you get into this very long discussion as to how that might possibly be the case. And I have time to go into a very long discussion this morning. But we can't leave this passage thinking that it says more about God's people back then than it has to say to us today. So let me just touch on several things i'm going to suggest very quickly that these are things that you and i might not necessarily do but that they that we might idolize from our world and let me offer if, if you would like to talk more about this i would be really happy to do that had a longer conversation with uh, 
a young man in college this past week who's encountering hearing things from other people, including people in church, that just don't seem to line up with Scripture. Loved having that conversation. I would love to have more of those. I think they're really important. So if you're interested, reach out to me. We'll happy to have that conversation. Let's keep in our mind what are idols. They are often good things, gifts from God, that we tend to raise to ultimate things, which means that you can find these things in your life without them being idols. We can enjoy relationships and children, careers, food, without idolizing them. It's when we're no longer enjoying them, but we have to have them. That's when we are trusting them to give us a good life more than we trust God, more than we trust obeying him, that's when we're no longer faithful. And when that happens, you find that they push God out of your own heart and that they tend to push him out of his church. So with deep fear and trembling, let me suggest maybe three areas where you might find this to be true in your own life. These are three areas where I find it way too easy to slide into relying on these same things that the larger world does as well. So one area first would be personal and generational idols that you've been taught. This would be things like believing that your worth and value come from what you do and that it com they come from how much you get paid to do it. Things like your reputation depends on how often you're promoted at work, on what kind of projects you have at work. Things like your children have to do well in school. They have to go to an Ivy if they can, or it reflects badly on you that you're not a good parent. Things like if you're in school now, then anything less than an A really means you failed. Things like you have to have a big house and a new car and the latest clothes, even if you can't afford them, so that everyone else knows how well you've done. It's a very short list of many of the things that we in the Philadelphia suburbs believe that we have to have in order to have a good life. And these are things that we are all aware of. At the same time that we're aware, we can still idolize them because they just pull so hard on our hearts. Okay, that's personal and generational idols. Second category, things that we rely on in our society. Things like how little... Uh, how, I'm sorry, things like how we believe that you can ignore what God says about people and yet still understand ourselves as people, still know ourselves truly. That we don't need God's thoughts on our nature as his images or his thoughts on what we should be or how to fix ourselves when we're broken. But that we can understand ourselves well enough to live well, to put ourselves back together when we're broken that we can rely on research, study, theory. We don't really need to hear anything from him to live well. And so we don't need his thoughts on morality, on identity, on relationships, government, economics. We can figure all of that out well enough by relying on ourselves to produce a good society. And we believe that we have the ability, that humanity has within ourselves all the tools to fix all suffering and all injustice without him. That we can deal effectively with all the forms of evil that we encounter. That we can craft legislation that will end it. 
that we can educate people out of it, that we can use shame to keep people from it, and that if we'll only keep moving forward, we'll create a world that just keeps getting better and better. We really do believe in this country that we can have the kingdom of heaven without the king. And if you've lived here for a while and you've gone through our educational institutions, that just seems reasonable because it's what you grew up hearing. Now, please hear me. I did not say that we can know nothing about ourselves and that we can do nothing to govern ourselves and that we cannot do anything to make a better world. What I'm saying is that we cannot know fundamental things about ourselves without relying on God to tell us those things. And if we don't know the fundamental things about ourselves, we're going to take everything that we do know and put a little distortion in it or a lot of distortion in it. And so everything that we do is always going to wind up getting undermined and we're not going to be able to get to what we actually aim at because we idolize our intellect. And again, these things are hard to talk about because these are the things that good, decent, successful, suburban people value. They're the things we believe. They're the things we've been taught since we were very little to rely on in order to have a good life. So you can think about generation and, generational and personal idols. You can think about idols in our society. And then third, you recognize that these idols do what they wander into the church. And so in the American church, we believe things like bigger is better. We believe that successful churches are larger. They have more programs. They reach more people. They do more stuff. We believe that you need powerful, charismatic people to get things done, even if they're a little narcissistic. We believe that newer is better, that the latest programs and trainings are by definition better than anything that you could have had from the past. We believe that more people will be interested in God if church is more engaging for them, that we need to ask what works more than we need to ask what's right. We believe that we can have our faith and still live comfortable lives. That we can be at home here on earth and that Jesus will not call us to suffer for his sake or for his kingdoms. We believe that our friends and neighbors should always think well of us. That we have no responsibility for them or for their souls. And we believe all that, even though you can't find that in Scripture. But it's what we're used to. It's what we're used to seeing and doing as we've grown up in church in this world. These are the horses that we're taught to pet. The male prostitutes that we're taught to greet. And so the question for people in Josiah's day is the same question for you and me. Since we are so used to worshiping other things along with worshiping God, will we embrace an approach to life that gets rid of all of that and relies on God alone? Or let me ask it a little bit differently. Point two. <laughs> Is there any hope? 
that we can actually be free of relying on all of those things and worship God instead? And the answer in this passage is just like the answer with everything else in the Christian life. That our hope is not in what we can do to fix ourselves. It's in God and in what he's doing. So you notice first in this passage that it's God who initiates. When Jeroboam led the people away from God, God sent them a prophet to predict that a day is going to come that would see the end of what Jeroboam started. So if you go back to the passage in 1 Kings 13, while Jeroboam was there offering sacrifices on his new altar, a prophet from the land of Judah, the southern kingdom, comes up and he cries out, Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. 300 years later, Josiah turns up and does exactly what God said he would. And that's why when Josiah is at Bethel and he's looking around at the tombs, he says in our passage, verse 17, what's that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you've done against the altar at Bethel. God knew all along what Jeroboam was doing. None of it was a surprise to him. And he had a plan to deal with it because none of it was a threat to him. What was God's plan? God had a plan all along. What was God's plan? It's to judge evil and to do so in such a way that it is completely removed from the land. That's his long-term goal for his people. That's his goal for you and me, to remove our false worship from us forever. How do you see that in this passage? Think back to what you see Josiah doing, and you realize that it's twofold. First, he removes all the things that people worshipped. Images, altars, he breaks and burns them so that they can never be used again. But then he goes a step further, secondly, and he defiles all the alternative worship sites. He defiles, verse 8, the high places. Verse 10, Topheth, that was in a certain valley. Verse 13, the high places east of Jerusalem. And verse 16, the altar at Bethel. What's Josiah doing? He's taking those places that people thought of as sacred to other deities and he's doing something to them. He's defiling them so that people will not ever be tempted to use them in that faithless way again anymore. They can't be used for false worship any longer. God sent Josiah, the son of David, both to remove everything that is evil and to do so in such a way that it will no longer be a temptation to his people in that place to do evil. 
And God does that because he will not surrender his people to idolatry, regardless of how dark things look for them. And the call of this passage, then, is to believe that. To believe that God will triumph over evil in your life. That he will triumph over evil when you've just gotten into sin again, and you can't seem to stop. That he will triumph over evil in your life when you found another idol in your life that you didn't know was there. That he'll triumph when you look at the state of the church in America and get discouraged. When you feel the pressures of this world to give in to what it says and to go along with what it believes. When you see yourself caught up in ungodly ways of thinking that your parents taught you, and you see yourself reproducing them in your children. When you see all of that, God calls you to believe that he will not surrender you to the forces of evil, regardless of how strong they are or of how long they've been in your life. Because he loves his people. He loves you. It's not going to let evil have the last word on you. It's wonderful news in this passage that comes with an incredible cost that's really disturbing. You read verse 20, that Josiah sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Those places of false worship were defiled. There were places where you could not be faithless to God anymore. They were defiled by the death of those who had offered sacrifices there. That's hard for us in the modern world. We hear things like that, and we're tempted to think, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure I like that. It's so barbaric. It's bloody. It's grotesque. I'm offended. God can't be like that. He can't be like that and loving at the same time. It's not fair. Why do some people have to die? Why can't they all just live? Passages like this tend to offend us, and so lots of people struggle with hearing that the priests are killed and burned, and they struggle with a bunch of other passages in the Old Testament that also seem harsh. Why do we struggle with this? As I listen to people, as I think about what upsets me when I read these passages, I think it goes back to a fundamental issue of belief. Maybe it'd be more accurate to say it goes back to something that we don't believe. When God tells Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to obey him and not eat the fruit from one tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when God tells Adam to obey, he also tells him what will happen if he disobeys. That on the day, Adam, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. On the day, Adam, that you reject God's word because you've decided to rely on something else instead, on that day, you forfeit your life. God says that, and we don't believe him. Not really. We don't believe that rejecting him once actually deserves death. We think surely he can pardon one sin, especially one that seems to us to be so small. We think it's not that big a deal. That he should just, what, cut, cut us some slack? That everyone deserves a break? 
So we don't come to a passage like this and see God's mercy to anyone as unusual. We don't see it as stunning. Because we really don't think that anyone should die. We don't believe that pure justice means that Josiah should not leave anyone alive, including himself. We don't believe that no one should walk away from his reforms with their life. We don't believe that everyone should have to pay for what they've done with their lives immediately. We don't believe that. We think instead that we deserve God's patience, that he owes it to us. We don't believe that we don't deserve 300 seconds of God's patience, much less 300 years. God's very clear on the day that you eat of it, the day that you reject me and my words. Go autonomous. On that day, you shall surely die. That would be perfect justice. And we don't think that. We don't believe God. We don't believe that his holiness is that big. We don't believe that our sin is that great. That God's wrath is that endless. That his justice is that righteous. We don't believe that his justice gives sin and evil everything they deserve. No more, but certainly no less. Instead, we think that when Scripture talks about God's wrath, that it means things like our wrath. We think that his wrath is like ours, that it's reactionary, mostly emotional, normally petty. And so we back away from these passages that talk about God's wrath and judgment because we don't want to think about him like that. We should not think about him like that. But his wrath is not like ours. It's holy. But we don't believe that. And so we don't really believe that idolatry is all that bad. And so here's God's kindness one more time. He shows you how bad idolatry really is on the cross, where you learn what it takes to get rid of idolatry in such a way that God does not have to get rid of you. How do you know that idolatry is really as bad as this passage in Kings says it is? Because Jesus chose to die in your place. He died the death you should have died as an idolater. And in doing so, as Romans 6 tells us, our old nature, that part of us that wanted nothing to do with God, it's our old nature that died. Why did he die in such a way so that our hatred of God also died? It's so that he could pay with his life the debt that you and I owe for ours. Because he loves you that much. See, those two things always go together, his love and his wrath. You can't have one without the other. Some people try. Some people are offended by these kinds of accounts in the Old Testament. There's a song written by Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend. It's called In Christ Alone. We sing it here sometimes. About 10 years ago, there was a, den a denomination that wanted to put that song in their hymn, hymn book. But they didn't like one of the lines. They didn't like the line, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They thought that makes God look bad, makes him look vindictive. And so they wanted to change the line till, to, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. The love of God was magnified. There's something to that, right? 
The cross does magnify God's love for the world. But it only magnifies his love if his love is actually doing something for us on the cross that we cannot do for ourselves. See, if we can save ourselves without Jesus dying, there's no love being shown by him on the cross. Think about it this way. I'm borrowing this from someone. If you're foolish, you happen to set your house on fire and you're locked inside, you're now trapped in a burning building. And if I rush in, drag you to safety outside onto the lawn, but I get so injured in the process that I'm dying. And if I tell you with my last voice, see how much I love you? Then you get it. You get how much I love you because my love is sacrificial. It's for you. It's for your sake. If I did not prefer your life to mine, you would have paid with your life. But if your house is burning and you and I are standing outside of it, we're out together on the lawn and we're watching it burn, and I turn to you and I say, see how much I love you? And I run inside the building and I die. You wouldn't say that's sacrificial. You'd say that's stupid, that that's not love. It's not love. Why? It's not needed. It didn't accomplish anything, didn't do anything. What Jesus did on the cross did something. He died for your idolatry so that you don't have to. He took your place, and he needed to. Josiah could not do enough for his people. About 20 years after his death, they ended up in exile. His reforms could not go deep enough. What we needed was a greater son of David. Someone who would come and judge evil completely and get rid of it forever. But we needed a son of David who would not kill you and me in the process and burn our bones on the altar of our idolatries. You needed a son of God, a son of David, who would take your place to save you, who would die for your faithlessness in your place, who would endure the heat of God's wrath for you, so that the evil in you would be destroyed to free you from it for eternity. The challenge to you and me is the same as to the people in Josiah's day. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is able to judge evil so well on the cross that you are free from the power of evil right now? So that right now you can give yourself wholeheartedly to worshiping him so that you can look forward to that day with joy when he comes to finish judging all the evil in the world to the day when you will never, ever be tempted by it again. Do you believe that? That's how much he loves you.